Because of the coronavirus epidemic and to respect social distancing guidelines, this episode of Civil Politics was recorded remotely over Zoom. Good evening and welcome to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio. WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow. I'm hosting tonight. I'm joined as usual by John R. Roberts and Sue Timberlake. Howdy ho. Hey there. And as is unusual, we are also joined by the Hampshire County Sheriff, Mr. Patrick Kaling. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, we're going to be able to uh, ask Mr. Uh, the the Sheriff a few questions for the next hour. He's been very kind to come on the show. and uh, yeah, so uh, we will. Uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to to uh, uh, meet Sheriff K. Lane at a fundraiser a couple of weeks ago for uh, Tanisha Sullivan, who was a, a guest on our show a couple of months ago. Now, I guess uh, she's running for Secretary of State here in Massachusetts. And uh, I asked him on the show, and he said yes. And uh, so I was very excited about that. And and Sue then went and did the legwork because it is our custom here on civil politics when we interview candidates for office to try and have everyone running for that office to uh, come on the show. So uh, next week we'll have uh, one of your two primary opponents. And then uh, uh, I think two weeks after that we'll have the third one. Um, yeah, because I think I think there's a there's a. Uh, debate you guys are doing in two two weeks from uh tonight on the uh uh 25th is yes. that right okay. yes it is right okay <clears throat> so uh people can tune into the, that to see more. go ahead sorry sue yeah but yeah by the way mike i'm sorry that my phone that makes it interrupt you guys um but there is no republican person in the race this time so which isn't unusual in massachusetts a lot of times there um there's no republican in in the category so so, anyway. which makes the primary of particular importance. Uh, and if you're interested, if you're a Massachusetts uh, uh, resident and you uh, can vote and would like to, uh, if you haven't registered yet, you can do so by uh, next Wednesday, the 17th, uh, in order to be able to vote in the primary. And the primary will be Tuesday, September 6th. So the day after Labor Day is when, <clears throat> um, well, for all intents and purposes, this important office will be decided at that election uh, two months before the actual general election in November. So uh, register to vote if you haven't. Send in for a mail-in ballot if you want one. And, uh, you know, or make sure to go and, and vote uh, on Tuesday the 6th. So um, I should also mention we do love to hear from our listeners. And uh, if there are uh, questions or comments you want to make, uh Best way to send them to us is to uh, email contact at civilpoliticsradio.com. But you can also tweet at civilpoliticsfm or leave a comment at facebook.com slash civilpoliticsradio. Um, yeah. And uh, if you want to listen to previous episodes of the show, maybe check out some other interviews we've done with uh, other candidates for office and local politicians uh, like the Northampton Chief of Police, Jody Casper, or uh, Nicole LaChapelle, the mayor of my fine city of East Hampton. Uh, yeah, you can find us there, uh, civilpoliticsradio.com. So go ahead and check that out. So, uh, <clears throat> um, Sheriff, uh, uh, I wanted to, well, all right, let's get started with, with some basic questions. Uh, most people, uh, like me, 
probably aren't really particularly aware of what exactly it, it is that the sheriff's office does. Uh, and I remember asking you when we first met a couple of weeks ago, and it was quite a list. Um, and since uh, sheriff's offices, uh, uh, the, the duties and responsibilities and powers of a sheriff vary from state to state, since it's a state office, unless it's shaped by state constitutions and laws. Um, yeah, there, there, there's probably a lot of uncertainty or ambiguity. So uh, please tell us, what is it that your the, the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office actually does? Well, first off, in Massachusetts, there's 14 counties and 13 mm -hmm. of the counties actually have facilities that are connected to them. Uh, the 14th county, county is Nantucket. So uh, Nantucket has to run very differently than than uh, the other the other thirteen. Uh, but realistically, the mission of the sheriff uh, is has to be different based on the type of county you are in and what the needs of the the county are. So in in Hampshire County, uh, we oversee a jail for pretrial individuals a house of correction, which is for sentenced individuals, a civil process and civil deputies office, which serves uh, legal documents for the courts, divorces, uh, restraining, uh, some restraining orders, uh, there are uh, evictions, those types, of, those types of documents get served by the civil process office. Um, I have staff that participate in uh, law enforcement task forces for different for different types of task forces. Uh, I have staff that participate in uh, different uh, community groups for, um, for uh, re-entry purposes and for court purposes, uh, such as the uh, Northampton Drug Court. Um, we have, uh, we provide transportation of, of inmates across the Commonwealth, depending on, on uh, where they're going and where they've been ordered to uh, uh, by the court. Um, all of the, and those are, those are the base functions of, of what has to happen. Now, on top of that, uh, you have um, a regional police lockup. That is for uh, the 20 police departments that are in the county, along with the two state police barracks and uh, the five colleges uh, that, uh, that have arrest powers. Uh, all of those, all of those individuals can be brought to the regional police lockup, and those those individuals are pre in in most cases are pre arraignment individuals. So they have not been in front of a judge at this point in time. Uh, we also run a community justice resource center. The community justice resource center is a a program in conjunction with the uh, uh, probation departments for for the Commonwealth and. Uh, we provide wraparound services at, at that center um, and urinalysis testing at that center. And we have um, a facility that we call the Bridge to the Future House and the Bridge to the Future House um, is a facility that we manage and we lease and, and, and that uh, facility puts people back at the end of their sentences into the community working uh, whether it's uh, with an employer or a mentor or going to school, uh, it can be many different options, but all of those individuals are on, on electronic monitors. 
And then there's the, um, the most recent uh, piece that we've put together on our end is the Rocky Hill Reentry Collaborative. And the Rocky Hill Reentry Collaborative uh, is a collaborative with the Massachusetts State Parole. And what we discovered during COVID was that uh, individuals that were, were getting parole dates from the parole department um, didn't have housing situations and, and, and housing uh, became very premium uh, for those individuals during, during COVID. And so uh, we opened up a, uh, one of our buildings, uh, parole pays us to uh, keep those beds available for them. And uh, we provide um, wraparound services again in the community based on the ideology that they are released from custody. They are no longer part of the custody uh, uh, situation in Hampshire County. So they're, um, though that group of individuals um, are free citizens under supervision of, of the Department of Parole. So we work with getting them uh, employment, permanent housing, um, mentors, uh, maybe uh, it may be job placement or it may be uh, some sort of a program, programmatic uh, program that we get them into with uh, one of the community colleges. Uh, so, so all of those pieces uh, kind of work together as, as part of what we do. Um, besides all of the, the legal requirements that we have to run a jail in the House of Correction. Um, I guess that's probably the best explanation of, of what we do. So uh, just one, one thing, I mean, there's a lot of things to ask about with that, but one thing that just immediately wondering, so what is the difference between the regional lockup and the jail? Because they're both people who haven't been actually convicted of a crime. So, okay. you know, so, what's the difference? The regional police lockup are uh, for people who are instantaneous arrests from uh, whether it be the state police or local police uh, agencies. And so if, uh, if you're arrested uh, on the highway uh, in Hampshire County and uh, somewhere on 91 tonight by a state trooper, mm -hmm. uh, they would bring you to the regional police lockup. They drop you off at the police at, at our lockup we take care of them till the next sitting of the court. We make sure that their uh, their health is okay, um, and especially during COVID, we uh, we were testing everybody uh, that came in to make sure that they they were not carriers. And even though they were separated out for that period of time, they were with us. Uh, that group of that group of individuals would be going into a court situation to be arraigned on whatever charges they were charged with by the police department. One of the one of the things that uh, and and those individuals who are considered jail inmates, they have already been in front of a judge, and a judge has decided that they should uh, remain in custody, or the judge may place a small bail or a high bail on them, depending on what the criminal behavior was. So uh, that's one of the one of the things that uh, most people or a lot of people uh, uh, don't realize is that. Uh, the sheriff doesn't make any choices on who comes through their doors. Uh, the court system makes those decisions as to who comes through our doors. Our responsibility on the other side of that is to, uh, is to make sure that they're healthy and safe and that the community is healthy and safe. So even though you are 
absolutely part of the criminal justice system. And I guess you are technically a, a law enforcement officer. Or you're certainly your employees are right. Technically, so technically, yeah. it is a it's a law enforcement, or we refer to it as a criminal justice agency. Not yeah. not everybody not everybody in the department uh, has to have the credentials to be a, a full fledged uh, police officer. Right. So in so uh, so in theory, if you if circumstances arose, you could place someone under arrest like a like a police officer, uh, but. That's not what your office normally does. You aren't out there patrolling the streets or making busts or whatever. That's just we, not part of it. We are not. We do have, uh, like I said earlier, we do have people who are members of task forces that work with yep. uh, their law enforcement counterparts that uh, that they have very specific duties. And, and part of that is tied to the idea that uh, the, the sheriff's department uh, may end up with those individuals that, that are arrested anyway. And so it's, it's a, it's a working, uh, working relationship with those law enforcement agencies. Hmm. So what kind of, uh, uh, not, not having to get down to, you know, specific dollar amounts, but roughly speaking, like what kind of budget does your, uh, does the Hampshire Sheriff's office have, uh, year to year? Our, our budget is, uh, is set by the legislature and the, uh, well, it's twofold. the The budget system starts obviously with the governor's budget, and, right. and we end up part of that that through administration and finance, and then that's a, usually officially approved by the legislature uh, at some point in time. Uh, the budget uh, this year is uh, sixteen million three hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so. Yeah, that that's that's real money. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and it gets it gets eaten up very fast when you have sure. uh, 150 employees. Yeah. OK. And um, how many. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. It, guess how many people are in custody on average? I mean. I know it's going to vary depending on who's arrested and people serving sentences or whatever, but roughly how many people are in your uh, agency's custodial care? It, you're right. It, it does fluctuate, and sometimes it fluctuates greatly depending on what's going on, even in the outside yeah. community. Um, or um, So today, today's custody was one, 126. Um, okay. Now, depending on what happens tonight, uh, to the the number I will receive at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning may read 132, depending on what happened across the the county sure. uh, for arrests, or they may be late entries from other departments. Uh, sometimes somebody from that has warrants in Northampton or Amherst or East Hampton um, might get arrested in Boston. And yep. so by the time uh, they're delivered from Suffolk County, it might be 10 or 11 o'clock tonight and they would be dropped off and, and uh, then their situation would be dealt with tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, um, go ahead, can Sue. I ask just a, so yeah. Sheriff, uh, I think I heard you say, cause I went to the debate the other night, but during COVID you actually, your census went down and it's still down a little bit, isn't it? From where it usually runs. It's, or it's back up to full. Oh no! It's it's uh, the facility was designed for 248. Um, I, I'm sorry, 
it was originally designed for 148 and we we put an addition on um, for 100 more beds uh, that's uh, that's the uh, part of the facility that I um, remodeled during COVID at, at the beginning of COVID I, I got it finished so that we could uh, utilize it safely but uh, our our count usually was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, at that point in time uh, 230 to 240 individuals and so we're we're at half that uh, at 126. Do you think it'll come back up eventually, or do you think this is the new normal and more people will be in the community? Or it, you know, it, is, the... it is the new normal, uh, but we've been starting to go in that direction for years in the criminal justice system uh, as we examine uh, such things as bails and how we use the bail system. Um, mm. And uh, as we look at uh, such things as veterans courts, uh, there were a lot of veterans that were in the, in the system that probably would have been better serviced in that in whether it be a veterans hospital or, or some sort of a veterans outreach program uh, so oh, that's interesting yes and and then uh the drug court uh the drug courts uh have worked well um i was at a, a graduation uh uh about three weeks ago from drug court of an individual that I had known for years. And um, I was I was proud to be there because uh, this individual and I were able to have communications over this period of time. Uh, one of my staff works with the drug court in, in uh, doing different services for, uh, for those individuals who may need some of our services, uh, whether they, when they leave or before. Um, but this individual was graduating after a year and a half um, of meeting all the criteria of drug court. And if you want to see um, how the future looks as far as some of the court systems, this is one way to look at it um, because it is very, very controlled. Now, it may cost more money to do drug court, and I don't know what the figures look like, but the more services that you're providing somebody, it costs more money. That's just a reality of everything that we do in, in, in the criminal justice system. But it's if you put the money up front into the drug court system and, and veterans courts, that may mean that they may never come back to the system again. And that's where you have to look at the long-term, where's the long-term savings going to be? Sure. So ulti ultimately, my my goal is to put our put us out of business. <laughs> you know, that's that that's uh, good luck. I, I yeah, support yeah. you. <laughs> you know, and and the reality is, is that's the way it should be looked at, because if we truly believe in reintegration and if we truly believe in rehabilitation, then we should be looking as we move down the road that we do a lot of wraparound services in the community. Uh, you know, and I use that term all the time, and, and I used it the other night, as a matter of fact. You used it a couple of times here. I, I was hoping you might define what it meant at some point. So <laughs> It means that when a person, uh, we we probably, and, I, and I'm going to make some assumptions about all of us uh, that are on, on this call. We Go probably ahead. have been very lucky in our lives that we've had people that have been able to support us. And oh, God. Keep, and oh, keep, yes. Keep, yeah. Oh, yes, and, indeed. <laughs> and keep us balanced. Um 
not, not everybody is that lucky. Uh, yeah. So when we look at those, when we look at some of the individuals that come through our system, when they're when they're going back out into the community, we have to provide them with, uh, and and some of the things that we do through the facility is, we we make sure that they, uh, if they need substance abuse or substance use uh, disorder uh, mentoring or a clinician, that we find them somebody in the community and we get them those services. We get them services, uh, it may be through uh, AA or NA. Um, and we put, we put all of these pieces uh, together with them and we get them to, to get uh, employment. And then we get them started looking for a permanent housing situation if they don't have a home to go to. And, and those were some of the things that during COVID uh, became very, very important. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I wrote uh, at, at a point during COVID because uh, everybody was saying, release everybody, release everybody. And I said that would be irresponsible without having any services in the community to, to get them. And, and we all know that everything was pretty well closed down and, and services were hard to come by. And, Wait, so, and so you're saying... You're saying releasing people from prison and they become they them becoming homeless might be bad. <laughs> I, I'm saying that any of us any of us who would have ended up homeless during during COVID would have been in trouble. Uh, that's yeah. that is a rea that's yeah. a reality of where we are. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. it's it, uh, you know, I, I mean, was, it's a good I point. I just hadn't thought about it. So, yeah, go I ahead, was sorry, go very, ahead. very concerned at the beginning of COVID, uh, you know, and uh, I you know, I would come home different times during the night or evening and, um, you know, and my mind would, would be back at work wondering about, okay, uh, what's going to happen if this person gets released? And, and we were, our, our senior staff were working diligently on who could be released, who could be put in a program if there was a program available. Um, and then we also worked with the district attorney's office and we worked with um, the defense bar. And it was, it was a phenomenal relationship because we were all doing it uh, either on Zoom or just on a telephone. And, but we were all keep, keeping that communication line open to make sure that people were getting released safely um, during this period of time. I, I, people wouldn't, Unless you were part of the experience, you you really wouldn't uh, wouldn't know it was happening. Uh, but the district attorney staff, um, the uh, the defense bar, were just phenomenal in, in working and talking with us, and uh, and uh, and they understood some of the circumstances too. If if somebody is homeless and they have no place to go and there's no nothing open, what what alternatives do they have? And, and so it, it was, uh, it was a long two and a half years and, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I still is, it still yeah. is, it still is. Yeah. I yeah. concern. Yeah. Um, can you uh, I, back up and define the defense bar for anybody that doesn't know what it is? Oh, well, there's, there's several pieces to the, uh, the defense bars. Some people have private, private defense attorneys, uh, some people have public uh, public counsel, uh, and some people might have uh, 
there's a piece in between where if you can afford to pay some fees, some of the fees, you may be able to hire uh, the defense attorneys that are that are part of a group that would go in and represent you. So, so the, I'm using the term defense bar kind of kind of being as inclusive as possible of, of the people that we we work with uh, on uh, on that we're working to get people released, but get getting people released responsibly. So the defense bar is the you're just referring to the defense bar as the defense attorneys and um, people that are working in in concert to um, to have yes. that side of the system covered. Yes. Okay. Just making sure. <laughs> and 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 the other side of that was uh, the district attorney's office. Uh, we're we're looking at it from the same perspective. Uh, what can what and how can we release these individuals uh, and make sure that they're safe and make sure that uh, if there's victims of the crime that the victims are safe. Uh, and so there was, a, there was a lot of balance points that, that took place during this. And, uh, and we had uh, our case managers and uh, our reentry uh, personnel all working on trying to make sure that they found uh, places that people could go. And, and they were doing, uh, literally doing pretty much daily interviews on, on people because we would get phone calls that uh, somebody would say, uh, Joe Smith can uh, live with us. And then when you check with Joe Smith, Joe Smith did not want to live with those people or, or vice versa, or, or the, uh, the individual uh, um, inmate would say to us that, uh, well, I have a home to go to. And uh, then you find out that, uh, well, the people were very concerned that uh, they might come out and they might be sick uh, because uh, at the beginning, a lot of people were concerned that everybody in facilities would uh, be COVID positive. So in those situations, um, uh, we, had, we had to work, we had to have our staff work to make sure that all the pieces and all the as much information as possible could be given to both the defense attorneys that were asking for their clients and for uh, the district attorney's office, so that when they were talking to the judge, they could say, "Your Honor, this is this is what we have. These are the circumstances. Uh, we think this person should be allowed to be released, and or this person should not be released, depending on the circumstances." Ooh. Well, um, yes. sorry about that. It, it's, no, no, no. That's that's <laughs> that's a lot great. More complicated. Yeah. 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 And there's a lot more to ask as uh, good follow up questions. But uh, we're actually right at our halfway point here. So uh, let's uh, play some PSAs, promos and station IDs. Keep the FCC happy. And then we'll be back with more uh, uh, questions with uh, uh, Sheriff Patrick Kayla in just a couple of minutes. So please don't go away. Uh, this is Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. 
Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Tune in to Evidence-Based Radio, science and skepticism from a feminist and socialist perspective. Every week, we explore the interesting and important stories in science with a focus on the positive. Friday nights from 6 to 7 on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, or at evidencebasedarada.com. That's 6 to 7 p.m. Fridays on Valley Free Radio. And we're back with civil politics here on Valley Free Radio. WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow. I'm still doing the show with my usual friends, Jamra and Sue. And we are joined by uh, Sheriff Patrick K. Lane, the Hampshire County Sheriff. Welcome back, uh, Sheriff. <clears throat> um, I wanted to uh, just uh, follow up on what you were saying about um, uh, dealing with the COVID epidemic uh, at the end of the first half. Um, so what COVID protocols do you guys still have in place or just in general for, for people, to, you know, for infectious disease and you know, making sure people are, are tested and safe and getting vaccines if they want them and so forth? We are still uh, giving vaccines uh, for those who uh, want them. Um, we, we never made it a mandatory situation for vaccines. And uh, uh, that was a that was a decision on my part. Uh, I mm -hmm. felt that uh, I took the vaccine and I took the vaccine first because I believe it, uh, in leadership uh, that, you know, uh, if, uh, if I'm going, one, if I'm going, if I'm going to take the vaccine or not take the vaccine and I get sick, how can I help the rest of the facility? Of so my, my idea was that after after long discussions with our medical director and some of the senior staff, they they were saying, "You you have to be first in line to take this this vaccine, and then uh, you can you can say to everybody else, look, it's it was safe enough for me. I didn't get sick. I didn't. Uh, I I've been healthy. So so that's that's where a lot of a uh, lot of the motivation uh, came from, as far as I was concerned. But uh, we still um, we we allow max, uh, masks optional. If people want to wear a mask, they can wear a mask. And I've asked that people be respectful of those who choose to wear a mask, because not everybody is is comfortable at this point in time. Um, mm. We we still uh, check temperatures coming into the facility for for everybody and. Mm -hmm. um, Individual individuals who get arrested and come in, uh, if they're showing symptoms, we we're testing, and if they if they're positive or if they say they're positive, we're going to we're going to isolate at that point in time, and we're going to continue to put protocols in place uh, because one person inside the facility uh, with COVID uh, 
could be disastrous. And, and I, I'm not willing to take that risk. And, and the CDC has also said that, uh, you know, you can relax um, the protocols, but I think they're also telling us that this has not gone away yet. Yeah. We know, we know there's other variants. Yes. And you were talking about uh, other situations. Monkeypox is the next is the next piece that we're we're paying a lot of attention to. Um, mm -hmm. We've we've sent out information uh, so that people are aware of, of what the symptoms look like uh, and and the rashes look like. We we have one of the things that the sheriffs together collectively we hired an epidemiologist to guide us at, ah. the, at the beginning of COVID because. Uh, we were not the medical experts, but we wanted the medical expertise. And so um, we hired an epidemiologist who uh, gave us good advice all through COVID. And we have, we have retained uh, her services because we want to get the same advice uh, for monkeypox. And so, um, so we continue to, uh, to take those strides and, and make sure that every, everybody is safe. You know, we have uh, an 18 member uh, medical staff, because we have people with substance abuse and we have people with co-occurring disorders. Um, and we have people who just come in and generally bad health. And so, um, we have, um, a physician. One of the things that, that also happened during this, the course of this period of time was we became our own, uh, medication assisted treatment program. Mm -hmm. And we were, we, we volunteered. I, I, at the beginning, uh, when when the state was looking for agencies to to volunteer, I was I was one of the first ones to step up and say, "Let's let's do this." And um, then we became a certified uh, opioid treatment center. Uh, it's it's uh, we're uh, yeah uh, we're mm -hmm. certified technically by the federal government uh, mm -hmm. to operate our own. Uh, our own uh, medication-assisted treatment, and allow a lot. It allows us to have other experts in the room. We we have hired a a doctor who um, believes in medication-assisted treatment, and mm -hmm. uh, she she guides us on the needs and the number of of people that look right in in that program. Uh, we have a, a physician's assistant who is, who is working on that program as well. And then we have a second um, physician who works with the rest of the population to make sure that they're healthy. And we have a nurse practitioner who is a full-time uh, staff member. And then we have nurses and clinicians. And then we have uh, contract services for uh, doctors and dentists and outside uh, a lot of outside uh, work that has to take place if a person has some sort of a, a disability that need, that we don't have the level of, of expertise inside the facility to take care of, they would they would be brought outside, and that happens on a, a pretty regular basis. Hmm. And uh, actually, so speaking of disabilities, you have you know you guys have accommodations in place for people who are you know have mobility uh challenges or we uh, we have uh, chronic illnesses so forth yeah. we have a section of the facility as a matter of fact it was the, it was part of the uh the facility that uh i had redesigned uh during covid or, or at the beginning 
we finished we finished uh, the project uh, uh, at the beginning of COVID. Um, there are um, access for people with disabilities in in that housing area, and um, that is uh, in most cases where we would house somebody. Um, otherwise, we would look at uh, depending on the level of, of acuity that an individual has, uh, we we take everything into account. That's why we have uh, treatment staff, medical staff that uh, assess these situations as soon as people come in and make sure that they're right, uh, they get the right housing placement and make mm -hmm. sure that they get uh, the right treatment while they're there. Um, it's, a, it's a comprehensive uh, staff that that have to work through this. It's, it's not just uh, security where we put them in a cell and we lock them away. This is mm. uh, uh, this is a, a balance balance between security, safety, safety for the public, safety for the staff, and safety for uh, the inmate population. It has to come into play, and so um, it's it's why we run a classification system where uh, we examine each individual based on their uh, their criminal history. Based on based on uh, possibly disabilities, depending on, on their circumstances, uh, based on uh, their um, their mental health and, and their medical health, uh, so all of those things come into play when they're being assessed to make sure that they get the right placement. Cool. <clears throat> well, uh, so I mean, I've got more questions, uh, but you know, uh, it occurs to me that maybe John and Sue would like a a chance to actually speak up and ask something so what? uh yeah i know crazy talk <laughs> yeah well. go for it genre <laughs> um well uh what are i don't know if this falls under your thing what are your thoughts on on cash bail uh, good should it we probably, adjust it i i think cash bail uh has out, outlived its usefulness uh, in many cases uh, because it's kind of a subjective system. You know, uh, $500 to me versus $500 to somebody else may mean a heck of a lot of difference in how long yep. I'm going to spend incarcerated uh, yep. uh, to get out. Uh, you know, our, and one of the, one of the things that happened uh, over the last two years was um, the pretrial populations, uh, their bails, their bails were lower. And so their, their amount of time that they stayed in custody were reduced. Uh, but there's no statistics that show whether they were reincarcerated, what percentage was reincarcerated, uh, what percentage committed new crimes. Uh, you know, it's going to be years before they even look at that. So, uh, but, um, there, uh, there has to be better ways. I mean, I, I look at uh, electronic monitors for one thing. First off, if, if, if we're a society who believes in, in the idea of rehabilitation, then why not, if a person is safe enough to do so? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about a violent criminal who, uh, you know, is into uh, doing armed robberies and, and, and are... A serious right. domestic You're not violence. talking Willie Sutton. <laughs> yeah. Right, correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I'm not talking Willie Sutton. 
but but uh, we we do have to we do have to look at okay electronic monitors have come a long way in the time that they're being used and and our local court system is using them more often now than they used to four or five years ago and and I think that's that's part of our population drop and I think uh, through COVID they uh, they looked at those situations and released more people uh, through that uh, you know unfortunately uh, I, I can't give you an accurate statistic on exactly how many people were released and what the reasons were because some people would go back to court and they would be released from court we wouldn't know the circumstances of what that release was other people would be released uh, on bail or released uh, uh, through the bail fund you know one of the things that's that's happened in massachusetts is uh there's a bail fund set up and and uh through the bail fund uh it, it's usually lower level criminal behavior uh people will get bailed out through the bail fund um and and i think that might that might take a, uh take place over time as far as fixing some of the uh situations as far as uh the cash bail system so <clears throat> that actually um reminds me of uh so one of the other uh you know chronic issues that comes up with law enforcement in this in this country uh, is the whole problem of civil asset forfeiture and the way it can be abused by law enforcement agencies. Now, obviously, you're not arresting people, so you're probably not doing a lot of civil asset forfeiture. But I'm just wondering, so of your uh, $16.3 million uh, budget, how much of that comes from civil asset forfeitures that are either directed to you from other police agencies in the state or else that your office uh, seizes directly? None, none of uh, the money in, in our uh, main appropriation from the, uh, from the Commonwealth would be uh, asset forfeiture money. Uh, asset forfeiture money would come into play uh, if, uh, if let's, let's utilize, utilize uh, the idea of a drug task force. If, if, sure. one, of, if one of my staff are working on, on the drug task force, and they've they've been working hours and hours on, on a specific case. We may get some of the those uh, asset forfeiture monies sent back to the department. Now, mm. there's there's limits on the way I can spend that. I mm -hmm. uh, and I, I couldn't go through the list of, of the different different pieces that I have to spend it on, but it has to be. Uh, I mean, I can't just go out and buy a new cruiser for myself or that type of thing. It's, uh, <laughs> it's more along the lines that, okay, if, if it's drug forfeiture money, let's say, uh, okay, what, what's the best use for this money and how can it be used uh, from the standpoint of, um, can we put, take some of that money and reutilize it into uh, purchasing new body cameras for uh, staff members who are going to be working on that task force? Mm -hmm. So, so there's limits to everything that is everything that is money that is not. Well, there's controls over all of our money. Uh, right. Contrary to popular belief, uh, there's a lot of controls. Uh, sure. We have we have nine different agencies that audit us uh, for different reasons. 
including right. the state auditor's office. And right. any discrepancies, we have to be able to provide explanations for that. Sure. And, uh, and so um, we've been very successful at passing those audits because we're very careful in uh, how we spend the money. We're also okay. very careful in giving back money because in many circumstances, uh, a grant is a perfect example of it. In a grant situation, those grants are written for a very specific purpose. And uh, whatever agency is giving you the grant, um, we're, in the, we're in the process right now of a, the possibility of getting a $750,000 a year grant uh, for uh, mental health and uh, medication assisted treatment. Um, and, and that's a SAMHSA grant. We're, we're looking like we might be able to, to get that grant. I can't just go out and just do anything with that money. There's very specific, very specific criteria that we have to write into that grant and we have to spend it for those reasons. And, and, and that's going to go into more community services, more, uh, more support in the, in the community, aftercare programming uh, in the community. Uh, because we know we know where some of those situations uh, fall through the cracks. So, so when we're talking about uh, money items, um, you know, civil for forfeiture kind of falls into that same category. If you get money from a civil yeah. forfeiture, you you have to you have to meet a criteria to how you spend it. I was just wondering, and that makes sense, and I'm I'm glad to hear that because certainly I've you know I've heard horror stories of abuse in various agencies, and I. I certainly wasn't trying to levy an accusation. I was just genuinely asking. Um, oh, and, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and that's that's an honest answer on it. Uh, yeah, yeah. You will find nothing more than. Um, I I uh, I'm wondering, do you have like a rough idea of like you know like over the past few years, like on average, how much uh, of your budget's been coming from civil asset forfeiture? No, I mean, has, that, any like civil asset civil asset forfeiture money would be above our 16 million three budget. Right. So it would be separate from, uh, sure. I, I think probably over the last three years, uh, it might've been $20,000, something in that nature. Uh, so a, a I, tiny fraction of the full. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. And I don't, I don't know what this year is, but I know from the past, it's always been uh, because I, I know I've, I've suggested things like, uh, the purchase of body cameras. Um, yeah. Our uh, body cameras can be good and it can be bad uh, because body cameras, you have to have good policy to work with them to make sure that uh, uh, you're not violating the staff members' rights, but at the same time, you're not, uh, you're not turning it off at every turn and then it, turn, it only turns on when something bad happens. So, so there's, right. Uh, but that's that's a good use for uh, a purchase item uh, because it's a safety it's a safety piece for staff. Um, you know, if if you can purchase technology equipment uh, that would be beneficial to the safety of the facility, that could be justified uh, through some of those types of things. Yeah. Okay, I mean that's that seems reasonable. I was just, I was just was curious. Um, do uh, speaking of body cameras that does remind me though so like you know the 
I guess for lack of a better term, the the guards at uh, you know at, at the the lockups and the jails and whatnot, are they wearing body cameras? Is that part of your policy right now? No, uh, uh, and uh, the proper term is correctional officers. Thank you. Uh, I yes. I don't know. No, no I know. <laughs> uh, and many people make that mistake. They're correctional officers, uh, and uh, at the present time, what happens is if if there's going to be a move of, of uh, an inmate from point A to point B because of some sort of an issue or a disturbance, uh, it is a requirement that body cameras be worn because uh, then it, it eliminates any questions. One of the things that uh, from a technology standpoint that uh, I did when we were redoing uh, the, the part of the facility that um, I, I finished at the start of COVID was we uh, integrated more cameras into our system. Uh, uh, whether they be stationary cameras in, in blind corners, uh, cameras in day room areas, so that if something sparks off, you have a full video of what went on. And, mm -hmm. and those things are recorded back to a server. Uh, so we increased the amount of cameras in, in the facility over the last two or three years for that purpose. And it's, it's for staff safety, but it's also for inmate safety. And, sure. uh, uh, you know, we, we also deal with the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is uh, a, a required standard that we, we look at. And uh, under the Prison Rape Elimination Act, we have to uh, make sure that uh, blind corners are covered so that uh, there can't be an accusation that somebody was uh, uh, having some sort of a sexual encounter in a blind corner. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, one of the ways to eliminate blind corners is, is to... Uh, install cameras in those areas. Hmm. Cool. I noticed that, that your statistics probably three, maybe five or six years ago, there were a couple of, you know, uh, harassment sort of claims that were pretty much unsubstantial, you know, two or three a year. In the last four or five years, you haven't had any on the, I looked on your webpage. And I guess that's sort of amazing, but I guess that's accurate. That yeah. um, it's not just the web page hasn't been updated. No, no, it is accurate. Um, yeah. Uh, we have trained investigators on staff uh, for PREA investigations. Uh, we also uh, do outside referrals to the criminal investigation unit of the district attorney's office. Uh, if you look back on, on my history and my career, I believe in uh, having somebody from the outside look at situations. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah. I, I I never, even when I was uh, the, uh, the special sheriff under Sheriff Garvey, he and I both believed in that same philosophy that uh, if, if there's a suspected criminal behavior or conduct, mm -hmm. we, want it, we want it addressed. And uh, in some cases, uh, we have brought in the district attorney's office to investigate. And, um, and in most situations, they, they go through everything. Uh, they, they, they look at logs, they look at cameras, they look at, uh, they, they do interviews with staff, they do interviews with the inmate population, um, and they do a thorough investigation that is that I can then say, I was not party to this because I want the facts to come out as the facts are. Um, yeah. Independent. Yeah. It, it's, it, you know what? Uh, the truth matters. 
Yes. Truth matters no matter what the circumstances are. And you, you know, sure you haven't been listening to our show? Because we say that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to listen more. But, uh, you know, I, I, that's the way I grew up. And, and, and nothing, nothing is going to change me from that. Uh, because I think the public requires me to be honest with them. It was, it was why we started giving notifications to uh, the press pretty much every two weeks and uh, to the legis- our, le- our whole legislative delegation, but roughly every two weeks, I was sending them information because I didn't want them not to know if we had a, if we had a problem uh, with COVID. And you know what? I found that that was very important because um, some of my communications at the beginning of COVID were from our legislative delegation because they wanted to know how safe we were and how we were taking care of things and 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 what better way to do it. But we we put it out there and then we put it up on our our uh, Facebook page uh, because uh, that's that was our way of informing the public any way we could. Now the local newspaper didn't publish uh, a lot of the stuff. So uh, we relied on our own communications uh, to do to do a lot of it. But but that's, you know, I believe in transparency from, uh, from the standpoint uh, that uh, we, the audits that we've been through, uh, the National Commission on Correctional Healthcare, uh, the American Correctional Association, CREA, uh, those, those are, those are to meet national standards. Uh, I believe in I believe in national standards, and we should believe in national standards uh, if we want the best out of our people, and if we want if we want the best out of uh, the system that we're running. You know. I have. Uh, I ramble. I ramble. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. Before we <laughs> no, no, before we get to the end, I have one question. I and I apologize if uh, I've been you know obviously doing like multiple things during the show, but like um. Uh, your thoughts on um, how to foster uh, uh, people incarcerated getting getting to vote in Massachusetts elections? Yeah, because I think uh, that is that under your purview. For it, it is under my purview, and uh, I will tell you right now that we were ahead of the curve on this because we've been doing it for years. We have been. Uh, I have had some phenomenal staff that uh, always always made sure at the beginning of, of election seasons that uh, they were making sure that uh, the inmate population knew what was going on. Um, so one of the things that we do is uh, we have a law librarian who coordinates it all. And the law librarian um, is pretty independent from the facility her job, her job is to ensure that uh, the inmate population gets the information that they need for their legal cases, and but we've also assigned uh, voting and voting rights to her, and she works directly with the local um, registrar of uh, voters, and she also uh, works with any community uh, that people come from, and she. She gives them free access to to uh, file for uh, uh, their their voting paperwork from wherever they came from and or from the local uh, um, 
voters. And there's postings throughout the facility to, to make sure that uh, they know that they have they may have a right to vote. Now, if they're if they're held uh, if they're sentenced, they may not have that right to vote. But we have to look at those situations, and so she becomes the the conduit to the registrar of voters for that. All right, excellent. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, um, I hear the music, so that's gonna about do it for us tonight uh, here on Civil Politics on Valley Free Radio. Uh, uh, Sheriff Patrick Kalane has been very gracious to join us tonight and answer our questions. Um, uh, Sheriff, uh, is there uh, if people are want to know more about your office or what you do, uh, is there a, like a website they should go to uh, to find out more? Well, uh, there's there is the uh, Hampshire County Sheriff's website uh, if you're talking about it from the non-political standpoint. Yeah, uh, I also have a well. You, I yep. Go ahead, and you're also running for office. So, I'm also yeah. running for office, so that, so I do have have a website, but I also have an email address, patrickjkalane at gmail dot com, which uh, you can communicate with the campaign. Uh, but uh, there, we do have a, a Patrick J. K. Lane uh, reelection uh, uh, Facebook and. Um, that, that you can look at, uh, you can uh, gather a lot of information about uh, what the sheriff's office does and, and doesn't do. Uh, right. and, you know, that's uh, 413-588-4583 is the number. If, uh, if uh, you're so inclined to call, uh, that's, All right. that, that is the campaign number. So. All right. Well, thanks very much. And uh, uh, yeah. Don't forget, uh, Mr. K. Lane's up for re-election uh, in uh, the primary on September 6th of this year. Um, that's ahead of the general election in November. So, um, But that's going to do it for Civil Politics Tonight here on Valley Free Radio. Coming up next is Subculture, followed by Table of Contents at 10 and OK Asia at midnight. Uh, we'll have a podcast of this show coming out to you in the wee hours of Monday and a repeat broadcast Monday afternoons at 4. So listen to us all over again. That'll do it for now. Thanks for listening. Good night. Civil Politics is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.